Good morning. Oh my goodness. So good to see you. Uh, you got a bear because it's me this morning. Uh, it's part of the schedule. Uh, I am so, so glad uh, to be with you as we uh, start a new year. I'm very much excited about this morning's message, uh, so much so that I have to apologize to the video guys and hopefully, oh, we do, uh, we have slides because I was reworking things and thinking things through this morning. Um, uh, turn to Nehemiah 8. That's where we'll be this morning. Um, interesting, this whole year since January, my personal intent as well as teaching, not just to the men, but also with a Bible study that I do on Tuesday morning uh, at noon, uh, if online, and if any of you, it's in the bulletin, if any of you just want to join us online, you can, uh, I would invite you, it's a, a wonderful study, even those of you who, you know, maybe lunchtime at school, you want to sneak away, grab that computer, join us on this bike, we're studying Job now, ooh, what a good story, um, just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Job's wife. And, and, and a lot of times we look at Job's wife and we kind of throw a lot of blame on her for her, just how she responded to her husband. But I want you to think about that real quickly for a moment. I know I'm on a tangent. What else is new? You know, as they say, squirrel. And there I go. Um, but if you consider Job's wife in a matter of a few days, lost everything. Uh, lost the provision and the wealth that uh, she had with Job. Her status, her position was gone. Her ten children, all were killed. Oh, can you it, it, Sad enough to lose a child, but to lose all of your children. And then the man, the man of God, Job, afflicted with this strange disease. And in their minds, and we see this as we read through the whole story, uh, the, the whole theology of that moment was, if you're prosperous, God is blessing. If you're suffering, God is condemning. And Job was conflicted by that himself. But here's a wife. Just basically saying, please just get it over with. Just get it over with. Don't be as hard on Job's wife, is what I'm saying. It's a natural response. Uh, all we know at the end of the book of Job is what? Everything is restored, including children. So... Uh, but we're here, my studying the book of Nehemiah. Uh, interesting, as we look through the setting of this book, it is so, so, so important to understand not only the Jewish people, but understand us. Uh, I'm not going to go back through the whole setting, but I am going to talk briefly uh, about how we got to this point in the setting. And it goes all the way back to the end of Solomon's reign. And there at the end of Solomon's reign, many of you will know, his son Rehoboam becomes the king of Israel. 
one nation. Twelve tribes becoming one nation. But very quickly after Rehoboam becomes king, there's a revolution. And the kingdom is divided. The northern kingdom, ten tribes, Israel. Under the leadership of Jeroboam, though an Israelite had given himself over to the pagan gods that had been brought into the land by Solomon's wives. And during the generations of Israel, from that time until 722 B.C., the northern kingdom, not a one, served the Lord God. Prophets came, prophets went. No repentance. And so God allowed the Assyrians to come in and to ravage the land. And those who were not killed were spread throughout the land. But the Jews, those in Judah, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, making the southern kingdom, there would come cycles of kings who repented and were loyal to God. Some of my favorites, Hezekiah, one of my great heroes of the faith, Jehoshaphat. Read his story sometime. These godly men who would steer the people back, but almost after they got back, another king would rise and take them back to the foreign gods, the idols. Finally, in 586 B.C., God said, Enough. I'm going to send you into exile. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes, and he leads the people into exile. But it wasn't like with the northern kingdom, a complete devastation. It was simply a captivity for 70 years. And just prior to the end of that 70 years, there rose up a new emperor, the king of Persia, Cyrus. And in 538 B.C., Cyrus issues a decree according to what uh, Ezra writes, moved by God. Allowing the Jews to go home. And they went home. And they began to rebuild the temple. But after some opposition, they stopped. And finally under Darius, work resumed. And in 516, the temple was completed. Now, there's great significance in that. I don't want you to miss this here. First of all, I want you to see this. 586, 516. How many years? 70. The significance and the significance of the temple, for you all to understand, that temple was more than just a church building that they went and they worshiped God in. The temple represented the presence of God. And with the completion of the temple, it said to the people, not just the Jews, but to everyone, God had returned. They were now reconciled and restored. We then see in 470 B.C., 
the sovereignty of God working behind the scenes, placing Esther as the queen of Persia. For such a time as this, Mordecai would say, for such a time as this, you are the queen. And because of her position in the kingdom, the Jews were spared of being annihilated. And then in 560, Ezra, called by God, is commissioned and goes home to Jerusalem to reestablish the teaching of the law, to restore the temple that since 516 to 460 had slowly deteriorated. And that will play a huge part in our story today. And so Ezra comes with gifts and Ezra begins to rebuild the temple. And then 455, Nehemiah. I want you to understand, even before we get there, the position that Nehemiah had in the Persian Empire. A very great position. Of all of the people, Nehemiah was responsible for the life of Artaxerxes. He was the man to make sure that he would never be poisoned. He was the man who tasted the food to ensure that nothing would happen to Artaxerxes. There was this bond between Artaxerxes and Nehemiah. And Artaxerxes allowed and helped Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem to rebuild this wall. And miraculously, over a very short period of time, in spite of opposition, in spite of a lack of loyalty and commitment by the officials the Jewish officials, that wall was rebuilt. And that's what leads us up to our story today in Nehemiah 8. The wall is rebuilt. The temple is restored in all of its grandeur and glory. And now the people are coming to celebrate this great victory. And they're standing outside the water gate. And it's here where this story begins in chapter 8. And in chapter 8, here we go. It says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that God had commanded Israel. Interesting, isn't it? They come to the edge of the, of the walls, entering into Jerusalem towards the temple. And before they go through that gate, the people, not Ezra, enforcing the word of God on them, but the people request, please bring us the word of God. Teach us the word of God so that we might come into the temple. 
And so Ezra brings the word to the people. Do you realize something? Uh, we live in a, a very unique age, do we not? Yes. Ever since the invention of the Gutenberg Press, the access that we have to information, and now with the, with the web, and it's gone even beyond what we've had with books, We've got an information, what they say, overload. Where do we turn? What do we turn to? Who should we listen to? What is our authority? For these Jews, the authority was the law, the word of God. God speaks. God speaks loudly. God speaks clearly. And it's in the pages of this book. People are out there today wondering, does God speak? People are out there seeking to hear the voice of God. Here it is. It has been collected over the ages. Written by the prophets and the apostles. For each generation to read, to hear, to understand. So that they may be in a right relationship with their creator. And more importantly, with their savior. God's word. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, and you know this. All scripture is inspired by God, is breathed out by God. The very breath of God. Your words reflect you. They identify you. And so when we read the Bible, we see, we hear literally the character, the person of God. All scripture is breathed out by God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's good. So we need to hear the word of God. Uh, we're fortunate, and I'll talk about this a little more. We're fortunate here. Because although we want to see people come to Christ, and we will see this, this, this room completely filled, and we want to see we are not going to compromise what the Word says to attract people. David never will. I never will. And for 30 plus years, the senior pastor of this church hasn't. And he will not. You come here, you're going to hear God's word. We need to read it. We need to read it. We need to think about it. The word is meditate. Uh, that's what the angel of the Lord told Joshua before he took the people into the land. He says, meditate on the book of the law that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will prosper and then you will have success. But none of that matters if you don't live it out. If it doesn't touch you. 
so that it affects how you live, how you think, how you feel. We are people that need to be driven by God's word. So Ezra, at the behest of the people, brings to the people before they come into the wall to enter into the presence of God, brings them the voice of God. But this is something that automatically happens. They've come for this great celebration. And they're going to have the reading of the word to celebrate God, to honor him, to praise him, to worship him. There is exuberance throughout the crowd and all of a sudden it changes. Because as Ezra preaches the word, this celebration becomes an examination. Look what happens. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and of the women and those who could understand it. And all of the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this very purpose. And as Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it all, the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And also these men with him, the Levites as well, helped the people, here it is, to understand the law while the people remained in their places. And they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave sense so that the people understood the reading. All of a sudden, prostrated before the Lord, they're hearing the word, and the word begins to open them up. The word of God begins to penetrate, not just into their minds, but into the depths of their hearts, to even their motivations. And what they thought were going to be just... Trumpets of praise were shifting to a self-examination. Because you see, that's what the Word of God does to us. Hebrews four twelve to 13 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Maybe this is why we don't take the word seriously. Maybe this is why we're going to neglect something. We'll neglect the reading of the word because quite frankly, sometimes the word is hard. It hurts. It's that surgeon's scalpel that is so necessary. It cuts. And it goes through our flesh, through our muscles, 
down into the very heart, our thoughts, our motivations. Jesus says, you've heard it read, do not commit adultery. I say to you, don't lust. You've heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, if you have hatred in your heart, you've already committed murder. You see, the word of God goes deep into our very motivation. And we can't hide from God when we read the word because that's what the Holy Spirit does. He opens our eyes, our hearts to the illumination. He illumines. He's the light of God. And he, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God, begins to teach us. But part of that teaching is this. It lays us open so that anything that is a hindrance to our relationship with God is exposed. And so the people bowed before God and the outside of the wall there at the water gate and the word of God is telling them they are not who they think they are because the word not only examines us but as it gets into our heart it convicts us doesn't it it convicts verse 9 says in Nehemiah who was the governor and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all them this day is holy to the Lord your God do not mourn or weep here it is for all of the people wept as they heard the words of the law they wept they were so stricken by the fact that they weren't who they thought they were That instead of being the people of God, they were anything but the people of God. They were Jews genetically. But they were not Jews spiritually. The people soon realized they were not the people they professed themselves to be. As the title says, they were having an identity crisis. Who were the Jews? I mean, we call them the people of God, but but who were they? Why did they come into existence? Why did God back with Abram call him out from among all of the people? To be the father of this great nation called Israel. For what purpose? Genesis 12 gives us that. In the first three verses it says, Now the Lord appeared to Abram. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you of a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you, get this, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. What was the purpose? First, we know this, the Redeemer would come through the line of Abraham. 
the Lord Jesus Christ would be birthed. And the Lord Jesus Christ would come to this world for one purpose. In bringing glory to the Father, he would give his life as a ransom so that the God who is just would be the God who would justify us, who would make reconciliation a reality. His redemptive work was the act of grace that satisfied the judgment of God against us. So now we can be reconciled and restored, becoming the people that God desired us to be. We know that's one purpose. But there was another purpose. Until Christ came and redeemed, they would be the the forerunners, the light that would point to the Messiah. Through them, the people of the world would be blessed. Through them, the people of the world would be pointed to God, a God of mercy, a God of forgiveness. Through them, by people reaching and becoming just like them, they would be redeemed. They were the light in a darkened world, a light back to God. They lost their light here, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But in the same way, what was handed from the Jews has been handed to us. Jesus says this, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's our purpose. We are to be a light in a darkened world. We're what the Jews or the Israelites were under the old covenant, under the new covenant. It is our responsibility and more importantly, it's our privilege to be the people of righteousness in an unrighteous world. To be a people of light in a dark world. To show people not only how they should live, but more importantly, to show people how they are to be if they're going to be right with God. Now let me tell you something. Because I think sometimes it's easier. So I get tied up here. It's easier to get caught up in, in political solutions It's easier to get caught up in social concern and we forget what our real purpose is. How do we do this? Jesus says this when he gives the commission, the great commission to the disciples. He says, now all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and teaching them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. That's how we do it. Through the proclamation of the gospel and then through the discipleship that comes from those who are converted to Christ. It's reconciliation that leads to restoration. And we got a world that is so desperately in need of reconciliation. Without us sharing the gospel, our world keeps getting more and more and more depraved. If there's ever a time that we should be the people of God, it is now. 
And that there's ever a time that we should be reaching out and discipling, beginning in our families and then moving beyond our families into the walls of the church, coming together so that we may love and do good deeds. Now's the time. The world's confused. And if we don't show them the right way, their confusion gets worse. And over the last 10 years, we're living in a world that's really confused. For the Jews here, what they realized, they, first they realized that they were half-hearted in their devotion to the Lord. The book of Malachi, this great prophet, this was the time that he was prophesying. It was during this time. And when you read the book of Malachi, and I'm not going to read the book, but I'm going to touch on the highlights of the book of Malachi so that you understand the half-heartedness in their devotion to God. With their lips, they said we were Jews. With their hearts and their life, they were anything but Jewish. Listen to what Malachi, the points. In Malachi 1.13, they offered defiled sacrifices. Blemished. Not the best, not the pure. They offered the least so that they can say, check off their list. We have sacrificed unto God. The priests, in their efforts to gain favor with people of prosperity and wealth and influence, they would teach according to what they desired. And so they turned away from the teaching of God's word in Malachi 2, 7 to 9. The people weren't faithful to their vows that they made to each other, especially to their marriages. First of all, they were giving their sons and daughters over to those who were not Jewish. And then secondly, divorce was rampant. Very rampant. That's why in the book of Malachi, you see Malachi saying God hates divorce. Uh, that's in Malachi 2.11 and 2.13 uh, and 14. They weren't a righteous people. Uh, they would, they would skim and skirt over to the wealthy and ignore the ones most needing. And then they weren't a grateful people. They didn't give of their hearts back to honor God. The Old Testament had the tithe. Well, they weren't even fulfilling the tithe, much less given of a thankful heart to God. So let me ask you that question. Are we fully devoted to the Lord? First, does our sacrifices measure up? You say sacrifices. What does Paul say in Romans 12, 1? He pleads. He begs. He says, I urge you, therefore, brothers, sisters, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, we present ourselves not in death, but we present ourselves alive. To the honor and the glory of God. Do we live up 
to the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ with how we live our lives. Think about it. Is our lives a testimony, a monument to the crucified Christ? He came and out of his great desire to please his father, he chose to die for us. Now, do we live to honor him? Honestly, I'm going to put myself on the altar here. No. Do I? Not to the level that he did. But it doesn't mean that we stop. It means we press forward. And that's why this living sacrifice is not a one-time thing. It's not simply a coming forward and dedicating or rededicating my life to God to consecrate myself before him, but it's a day-to-day, moment-by-moment as I wake and I say, God, today, today, I give my life to you in all of the things that I will encounter. I give it to you. I want to live for you. And then at the end of my day, as I lay my head down, I look and reflect on my day and I say, Lord, this is, I just did not, did not, did not. But he forgives. And we start again the next day. And the desire is that the next day I do a little better than I did the day before by the grace of God. Right? Right? Will we ever attain perfection here? No. But it doesn't mean that I shouldn't get closer every day. Do we hear and do we desire the teaching of God's word? 2 Timothy 4 Paul's last charge to Timothy was this very simply. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. You get this? Correct, correct, correct. Encourage, coach. You've heard some great halftime of some great halftime speeches, New Rockney speeches like this. They come in and they they just drive at them and get out there, win one for the Gipper type thing. Good preaching is win one for the Lord. Go out there, do it, correct this, watch out for this. But by the grace of God, you can do it. Right? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Oh my goodness. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to truth 
and wandering off into myths. Thank you for being here. At least I can say this about you. You're not running around trying to find the next self-help preacher. You're not trying to find the next great possibility or positive thinking guy. The guy that's going to tell you, fulfill your dreams. You're not here for that. Thank you for desiring to hear God's word. See, even music plays. Thank you. I like that. That was nice. I'm expecting more of the foghorn. Okay, hang on. Did I get everything I wanted to say there? Oh, no, I didn't. Turn the page. Um, Secondly, are we faithful to our vows, our commitments, especially in our marriages? At the end of Ephesians 5, where Paul talks about at that second half about a husband and a wife, a wife to serve her husband, a husband's to love their wives, to sacrifice for their wives. He simply sums it up this way. Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let each wife respect her husband. That sums it up, doesn't it? Are you faithful to that vow? Uh, I think as you live out your marriage to your husband and wife for those who are married, it becomes a reflection of how you will live out your commitment in the world. And for those of you who aren't married, but you may be anticipating marriage one day, you younger person, that's the thing you want to look forward to. Because that commitment becomes the commitment that defines how you will practically live out. That's the commitment in this relationship. And the greater the commitment is in this relationship will determine this. And the outworking of this relationship a lot of times enforces, reinforces this, the relationship with God. But even if you're single, you maintain that commitment to one another. It's your vow. Your vow to God to for each other. We don't think about that. When we become a member of the congregation, when we become a member of the church, we are dedicating ourselves in the presence of God to love and to nurture each other. That is a vow. And the greater we commit that vow or committed to that vow, that becomes a reflection of whether or not we'll commit ourselves to the vows outside the church. Then are we a grateful people? Paul writes, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that it's having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. In other words, God provides. God's, God's the provider. Not me. Uh, this is not something where I've gone out and I've earned all of this, earned all this, and, and God, here's your little part. No, 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 no. You have, because of the blessing of God, your ability to earn is out of the grace of God. 
your physical health every day that allows you to go out and to do that job is the grace of God. What you're able to accumulate through the work that you have, you're able to do that because it is God who is behind that. And so we give our gifts and our offerings to say thank you. Thank you. What do we call that prayer before our meals? Come on, you know it. Grace. Grace. Have you ever thought about that? We say grace. Because it is grace that has provided the bounty on our table. We thank you, O Lord, for the food that we're about to partake. And for the blessings that come from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. Right? Grace. The other problem that the Jews face is they wanted to be of their world. Back in the book of Ezra, there was a problem. And we've already kind of touched on it. The idea that they were giving their sons and their daughters, allowing them. And even more than allowing them, in some cases, they were even arranging for their sons and daughters to be married to the officials and to the people of the land who were not Jewish. And in Ezra 9, 1 and 2, it says, After these things have been done, the officials approached Ezra and said, The people of Israel and of the priests and of the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations. For they have taken some of their daughters to be their wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And in this faithlessness, the hand of officials and chief men have been foremost. Catch that last line. These weren't just simply Hava coming to Tevia after she had fallen in love with a man of the Orthodox Church there in Russia saying, I want to break tradition, Father, let me marry this man. It wasn't that. It was Tevia going to the families of the Orthodox and saying, here's my daughter. Can she marry your son so that I have standing among the people? That's what was happening. God isn't against pagans coming to him. In fact, some of the great women of the Bible were once pagans. Rahab from Jericho, the prostitute. Ruth, the Moabitess. These two ladies themselves are, are signs of what the purpose of the Jews were, were to bring redemption to a lost and fallen world. These two ladies become Israelites. And by giving themselves over to the true God of the universe, they become a very special part of God's plan and purposes because they are of the lineage of Jesus. The ancestral women that led from birth to birth to birth would one day, the Son of God, 
would become the Son of Man through their line. Amazing. Let me ask you, do we want to be of the world? We're in the world. In fact, this is what Jesus says. Jesus says in his prayer to the Father before his crucifixion, he says, and I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Now look what he says. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth, for your word is truth. And you've sent me into the world, says I have sent them in the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Uh, let me just real briefly, i got to do this briefly. Don't miss what holiness is. Holiness is not a list. It's not a list. It's a life. I'm not more holy because I pray X number of hours a day. That doesn't necessarily make me holy. It makes me religious, but it may not make me holy. And prayer does make me holy. Studying and knowing the law, the book, the Bible. Hours and hours and hours. May or may not make me holy. Religious, yes. Isn't this what the Pharisees did? Isn't this what the scribes did? So what are we talking about when we're talking about holiness? Oh yeah, prayer is there. Yeah, you need to become a woman and a man of prayer. Okay. You need to become... We do. We need to become people of the word. That is our first and final authority. However, don't become so constrained that you take the joy of living out of your life. It's okay to laugh. It's okay to listen. It's okay to have friends and conversations but don't let the world take you in. Don't be captivated by the simple pleasures, the immediate gratifications of this world, because they all lead to one thing, death and destruction. Is that not what John says? Do not love the world nor the things of the world. For the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life is going away. It is going to die. But Jesus lived in the world, didn't he? Jesus celebrated. Jesus enjoyed the blessings of God and the ceremonies. and it, That's okay. Don't become monastics. Now, there are times where we may pull away, withdraw, so that we may... Grow in our relationship with God, just like the Lord Jesus did for 40 days, 40 nights. He went in the wilderness to pray and to fast. Uh, those times are important, but don't become so rigid and so legalistic. 
But on the other end of things, don't become so antinomian against the law, separate from the law, that you just become compromised by the world. Don't. Don't. Live in the world, but keep your focus, your gaze upward to where your Savior is. Finally, the Word of God confronts us. Nehemiah says, Then Ezra said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So all the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they understood the words that were declared to them. Here's the thing I want you to see. The restoration of the temple and the rebuilding of the wall, as well as the reading of the word, reminded the people that in spite of their faithlessness, God was faithful. In fact, when they went into captivity back in 586 B.C., Jeremiah writes the whole thing about faithfulness of God. He, he says, he's, 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 as he looks at the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the city, he's filled with bitterness and gall. And as he's in anguish over this, it says, but this I call to mind. And in this, I gain joy. The loving kindness of the Lord is nude, renewed every morning. Great is his faithfulness. God is faithful to himself. I want you to understand that because we think God's faithful to me. He is faithful, but his faithfulness to me is, is, is because he's faithful to himself. He has made a promise. He has made a commitment that he would redeem a people to himself and he's going to be faithful to that because it's his integrity on the line. We're simply the beneficiaries or the recipients of that faithfulness. You and me. And so for the Jews, as they looked up and they saw that temple and all of its beauty, as they come up and they saw that repaired wall with all of the gates in place, opening and shutting, opening and shutting, as they saw everything fully restored, it reminded them that God had not left them, even though they had left God. And all they needed to do was turn to him and find forgiveness. We take comfort in the fact that God is equally faithful to us. Second Corinthians 1, 3-4, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction and with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I want to read you one thing, and then I'm going to close. In Psalm 17, I was reading this this week in my prayer time, and this caught me because I never thought of this. And I wonder if you've thought of this. In verse 8, David is writing this song to the Lord about God, keep me safe, guard me, protect me. 
And in verse 8, he says, keep me as the apple of your eye. Think about that for a moment, will you? And what that phrase means, that God's desire is you. Keep you as the apple of his eye. Everything God has done from your creation, your existence, but more importantly, to reach out and provide salvation demonstrates that you are the apple of his eye. Never thought of that before. Hits me. I'm not asking you today. It's January 1st. I don't want resolutions. I really don't. Stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. Because you don't keep them. Just stop it. I'm just asking you to do this. Be the people of God that God has called you to be. And don't make resolutions. But repent. Repent. And from this day forward, just like the Jews who didn't that day enter in the walls, but the next few days they will, and they would come, and they would confess their sins, and they would be made right with God. Repent. Be right with God. Move forward, beginning today. So that the worship team has time to get up here. Come on, guys, start walking. They're coming. I'm going to wait till they get closer. Because I do this to them. And there's like this long gap. And they're like, you're not giving us a warning. I'll wait for Becky because she's been ill. Okay, ready? As the people said, with the reading of God's word and at its completion... Amen. Amen. Amen.